the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another installment of the program. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Prof Show, danproftshow.com, and Spotify, and uh, uh, iTunes is where you get podcasts of the show as well for your listening convenience. We begin on uh, this edition of the Dan Prof Show with the testimony from Sally Yates before the Senate yesterday. I want to get to, in particular, the exchanges between Lindsey Graham and uh, Josh Hawley and Miss Yates, the former deputy and acting attorney general. Beginning with uh, Lindsey Graham, I suppose, Lindsey Graham trying to establish the simple proposition that uh, Sally Yates would not have signed the misleading, fraudulent uh, surveillance warrant applications to the FISA court if she knew then what she knows now. Senator, I believe that the Department of Justice and the FBI have a duty of candor with the FISA court. Do you believe they fulfilled that duty? No, I do not believe that they did. I okay. think that there were. As a matter of fact, you signed that warrant application in October and January. Is that correct? That's right. Knowing now, knowing then what you know now, would you sign that application? Senator, I would never sign any document. So I take that to be no, because that document was a fraud. Is that a fair statement? If you knew then what you know now, you wouldn't have signed it? I wouldn't sign anything that I knew to contain errors or omissions. Well, did that contain errors and omissions? Yeah, and I would never knowingly sign a document. Right. I, I didn't do that in the 27 years. I, I believe you didn't know. I believe you didn't know that what you signed was wrong. The question is, if you had known, you wouldn't sign it. Is that correct? No, if I had known that it contained incorrect information, I, I certainly wouldn't have signed it. Thank you. And do you agree with me it did contain incorrect information? I, I know that now based on the horror which report. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that you lied to the court. I'm saying you signed something that was a lie and you didn't know it. That's one question. Uh, what would you have done knowing what you know now? But there's another and frankly more important questioning and line of inquiry. And that was uh, leveled up by Josh Hawley, the Republican senator from Missouri. This was the, the more important portion of the hearing. This uh, idea that uh, there is uh, no one in a position of authority that seems to be accountable for what happens on their watch. That turns out to be a bit of a problem. Also, it turns out to be a bit difficult to believe. Why don't we just pick up right there? Because you know, the chairman says that, that he has no doubt that you had no intent to defraud the court. I noticed when Mr. Rosenstein was here before this committee, I'm sure you saw his testimony or read it a few weeks ago. He said that he couldn't be to blame or otherwise be held accountable for the falsified FISA applications, the many material misstatements of fact, uh, because he just relied on uh, the, uh, the representations that were made to him. 
So we're left wondering, I mean, who exactly is responsible here? It seems that nobody's really responsible. Somehow or another, a federal court, a secret federal court, was actively misled, lied to, and presented with falsified evidence, but nobody in the chain of command is to blame. So let me just ask you about your own responsibility. Did you actually read these FISA applications? I did. You did? That's your testimony yes. today? You told, yes, the, you told the inspector general that you had no recollection, actually, of, of reviewing renewal application number one. Is, that, is your testimony today different? No, I think what I, was, what I told the inspector general was I didn't have a specific recollection of sitting at my desk and asking questions about it, but I most assuredly reviewed it. You said that you did not have any specific recollection of reviewing renewal application number one. But today you say you did? That's great if you did, because I'd like to ask you some more detailed questions. I just want to get clear on this testimony. Yes, I did. Interesting. Um, now, you told the Inspector General that the Carter Page FISA applications that you signed off on and that you now say that you read and carefully reviewed, that uh, these applications, by the way, that contained multiple material misstatements and would later contain falsified evidence, you said that these were not a close call. You also told the IGE that you thought that the application, the initial application and the renewals were appropriate steps and you didn't have any qualms about them. Do you recall what the FISA court said about these applications? Yes, Senator. And when I was speaking with the Inspector General, I was referring to the applications based on the assumption that all of the information was accurate. What was learned later, and what the FISA court was responding to later, is that there were errors and omissions. In well, the, the, the errors and omissions were there at the time that you signed off on them, were they not? And you just testified that you read them closely. So they were there when you signed off on them, correct? That's correct. They okay, were. let me remind you what... Yeah, so they were there when you signed off on them. And, and here's the thing, given what we know now, nothing prompted any further inquiry. You're presented with these uh, documents for the purposes of signing an application for a warrant to surveil uh, operatives, uh, associates of the president's campaign team, the incoming president's campaign team. You're, uh, this is in the context of a essentially an investigation of treason by the incoming president, by first the major party candidate for president, then the incoming president. Treason. And uh, you just uh, treat this as any old paperwork that would cross your desk coming over from the FBI. And, well, you know, uh, but da, 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 look, this looks good. This looks good. These are the uh, giant intellects. These are accomplished professionals, part of the expert class that lords over us. Right? The deputy attorney general and acting uh, subsequently acting attorney general, of the United States of America. Rod Rosenstein falls in this camp, too. And um, no questions about the sources, the accuracy, nothing in there as sensational as some of it was that would prompt any, uh, I don't know, someone, I don't know that you need to go as far as second guessing, but, but prompt somebody to say, really, this, this really happened. You're sure this checks out? Because according to Real Clear Investigations, we had Eric Felton on the show, but others, I mean, this is the sensational charges that were based on nothing. And, uh, ostensibly some of the nation's best attorneys like Sally Yates and Rod Rosenstein had no questions. I'm just a passive processor of information from the FBI to the FISA court. I am the mo one. I am a part of a group of people that are giant intellects and also the most incurious people in the Western world. And uh, it continued. 
Because here's something else Sally Yates asserts she didn't know was happening. And that was her deputy, the number three at Justice, Bruce Orr, uh, providing uh, aid and comfort to his wife, who is working for Fusion GPS, by arranging meetings between FBI and State Department and campaign operatives like Steele. I noticed that you, you said, Ms. Yates, to the IG, that you didn't know who Christopher Steele was working for. In fact, you opined to the IG that you thought maybe he was working for the Republican Party. Of course, we know from Steele himself, Steele told the IG that he, Steele, told the FBI in July of 2016 that he'd been hired by the Democrats. We also know that your deputy, Bruce Orr, knew that Steele was working for the Democrats. And the same deputy, Bruce Orr, your deputy, while he was working for you, was actively facilitating contacts between the FBI and, uh, and uh, Steele, and also between the State Department and Steele. How did this happen on your watch? Is it, is it normal for you to permit your deputies to facilitate contacts between political parties and the FBI and the State Department? Is that routine behavior? Permitting Bruce Orr to do anything. As the Inspector General found, I was completely unaware of Bruce Orr's actions. I'm sorry, could you, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear that. Can you repeat that? I wasn't allowing Bruce Orr to do anything, as the Inspector General found in the IG report to which you have referred, that I was completely unaware of Bruce Orr's actions. And Bruce Orr had no involvement from our side in any of the Russia investigation or the Carter Page files. I, uh, again, uh, I, I didn't know. I was a uh, buffoon. I worked around. Um, Steele, I don't know who Steele is. I don't know who he's working for. July of 16, he told the FBI five months before, uh, four months before the 2016 election, he told the, F, uh, the FBI was apprised of who he was working for. He'd been hired through a cutout by the Clinton campaign. And yet uh, that's not related to Sally Yates over at Justice. Josh Hawley detects a pattern. I seem to detect a pattern here. There's, Ms. Yates testifies she has no idea what her deputy is doing as he facilitates contact between a political party opposition research and the FBI. She has no idea that these, these applications that she signed materially misled a federal court, just as Rosenstein said, he had no idea. Nobody appears to know anything in this government, and yet somehow a federal court was deliberately and systematically misled so severely that they now say they can't trust anything that the FBI did. If this doesn't call for a cleaning of house at DOJ and the FBI, I don't know what it is, and I just know that Bruce Orr is still on the payroll at the Department of Justice. Thank Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That's remarkable. You know, this whole idea, well, this is plausible deniability and so on and so forth, this blame shifting or this I was in the dark and I was worked around and so forth. Yeah, plausible deniability. There's two words there, deniability. Also plausible. Is it plausible that uh, Sally Yates, Rod Rose, no idea any of this was afoot? Is that plausible? This is Dan Brown. Show.com. Welcome back. Uh, moving over to uh, COVID matters and particularly school reopenings. Uh, in advance, by the way, after the break, we'll be talking to Stephen Hatfield, who's a, a virologist. Uh, he wrote a piece about uh, the curious way the media is denigrating hydroxychloroquine as an effective early treatment for COVID-19 infected. 
So we'll get to that aspect of the discussion, the treatment aspect, but schools. A summary of the top line summary of the research on children being relegated to e-learning and learning in quotation marks based on what we know of the scholarship of how they learn when in these environments, particularly as you go down the socioeconomic scale. I mean, I say again, and I wish the president would say it more, those who are advocating e-learning only for education at any level are those who are saying, I'm rich. I'm rich and we'll figure something out for my kid. We'll figure out the best thing for my kid. I'm indifferent to the best thing for everybody's children because I want a virtue signal along with the teachers union or because I'm so fear addled that I can't distill basic information about the viral spread and its impact on children. So the impacts, top lines from any number of studies that uh, we've discussed individually over the last several weeks. Significant increases in suicide and self-harm. Exposure to extreme increases in, in domestic abuse, at least a 50% increase in abuse and neglect. Increased cases of hunger and malnutrition, at least double the typical rate of, a, of mild to, to a severe depression. Worsened education gaps and the loss of future income. The exhibition of post-traumatic stress disorder up to 4x greater than usual. Exhibit, uh, exhibition of reduced social and cognitive competencies and developmental delays. Worse attainment for children with special educational needs. Uh, short and long-term mental health issues. Increase in suicides among children with special educational needs. Increases in restlessness, irritability, anxiety, and inattention. And as we know from the spring, the uh, just to put a fine point on the educational gaps, two-thirds, but you know, about uh, uh, 40 to 60 percent of the progress that should be made when it comes to core, core skills like math and reading. And for what? The specious way that politicians and teachers unions are making the case should be an alert. And let me give an example of what I need from my, what, what I mean from my home state. This is uh, one of the uh, worst governors in the country on the topic that's being treated as one of the best, like Andrew Cuomo. But this is J.B. Pritzker, Illinois. This virus is dangerous, no matter how young you are, because of the long-term damage that it can cause. It's not just a matter of how likely am I to die. Young people who survive COVID-19 report fatigue, breathing problems, and heart issues. Mm -hmm. What about young people who survive any other illness that afflicts the young? At the same incidence of COVID-19, influenza, for example. I mean, we know the fatality rate. So that's the worst possible outcome. We know the fatality rate is higher among children. We know the, the raw numbers are significantly higher. That doesn't prompt a lockdown. I thought it was everything to save a child. It, it, it's just a such a, a purposefully misleading way of addressing this for the uh, express desire of increasing fear and irrationality so that you run to Governor Pritzker, other governors, and say, save us. It's also running cover for their constituents, the public sector unions, particularly the teachers union in this case. As um, Rich Lowry writes at the New York Post, our friend from National Review, no other group has shown as much contempt for its own work during coronavirus as teachers. There are unions actively fighting to keep kids out of classrooms and to limit remote instruction, lest it require too much time and attention from people who are supposed to be wholly devoted to educating our children. And again, the caveat, this is not all teachers. It's not all schools. But let me tell you something. Uh, it is a lot of teachers in a lot of school government school districts spread across a lot of the nation. It's a huge problem. And maybe this will prompt because of parental 
parents parents getting together to uh, develop pods to uh, reorder their lives so that kids can go to private school where there's in-classroom instruction for now in states like Illinois governed by Democrat socialists. Perhaps that's how it'll play out and and thus lead to a rethinking of how we do K through 12 education altogether in this country, which would be a positive thing, because as we know, as we've gone over the data, the spend and the staffing increases, both teachers as well as uh, support staff in school districts, exponentially outpacing student growth over the last 40 years and achievement, the achievement, the the results flat. So if we could uh, rethink how we spend money on K through 12 to make the systems more child centered and more outcome oriented, then it will have been bit of a hardship for millions of families around the country, but perhaps it would have been, it will be worth it going forward. But I, I'm not so sure I see that happening, except again, among those with means. Shut down my business. Don't allow me to work. I'm rich. That's what people are saying. Go ahead and shut down my school. Go ahead and do all e-learning. I'm with the teachers unions. I'm rich. Let me give you an example of the, the lack of data and science that is being that 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 punctuates these arguments being made by teachers this is from cnn.com kathy valet or valley she's a teacher in southwestern michigan i teach public school i love my students i don't want to die again professor woolhouse at edinburgh university across the pond looking for documented cases of student to teacher transmission having a difficult time again more than two dozen countries in the West who have resumed schooling, or in the case of Sweden, never stopped schooling. Sweden and Finland, where kids are in school, zero fatalities. No discernible increased infection rate among the teaching profession. But it doesn't matter because it's not rational and because it's particularly self-interested. She writes, does this teacher in Southwest Michigan, the irony of the situation can be seen in the school board meetings and parent input sessions that I'm invited to attend. They're held remotely because no one would think to pack dozens of people into a room together as COVID-19 cases continue to rise, unless we're talking about students in a classroom, that is. That's supposed to be some zing line. Again, how the virus affects students, young people, is different than how it affects their parents and grandparents. What is so difficult about that? But that is completely glossed over because they're not being honest or they don't have the cognitive discipline to actually assess what we know to be true. They're just interested in signaling their willingness, but out of an abundance of caution, we can't. Somehow, for the good of the economy, she writes, we're all expected to walk this delicate tightrope while maintaining health and safety looks one way for the, uh, where maintaining health and safety looks one way for the entire population and another way for students and teachers. Is that right? Teachers are the only ones that are asked to go back to work. Is she not familiar with the essential workers who've been working through the entirety of the pandemic, including its apex in April? Should we introduce her to Grocery store workers, law enforcement, people refuse to wear masks during a 30 minute shopping excursion. Is this really a battle we expect teachers and staff to engage in on buses and narrow hallways and classrooms? That's an unfair burden to put on school staff. I mean, all of this is just, again, talking past everything we know to be true because it's just a sentimental jibber jabber. This is my feelings. These are the thoughts in my head, so they must be true to the extent there is data that would undermine their accuracy, I will just ignore and repeat my feelings. There's just no reasoning with some people, but there should be reasoning, the ability to reason, the ability to assess information among enough of the electorate to make sure that reasonable people are in charge of schools, important 
jobs like the education of children, as well as representatives in public office. And maybe there's this is an opportunity for a reassessment of those decisions as well. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, President, and... uh, this family still having uh, problems with uh, social media, at least in terms of their posts staying up. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. had posts taken down regarding uh, hydroxychloroquine as uh, one of uh, the therapeutics to treat COVID-19 infected patients. And um, yesterday, President Trump had a, a post on Facebook and Twitter taken down uh, because it included uh, his suggestion I'm quoting the president now. My view is that schools should be open. If you look at children, children are almost, and I would say almost, I would almost say definitely, but almost immune from this disease, that they have much stronger immune systems and just don't have a problem. Uh, Facebook spokesperson told Fox News, the video includes false claims that a group of people is immune from COVID-19, which is a violation of our policies around harmful COVID-19 information. Uh-huh. Well, that's not the claim that was made, number one. So you're misstating the claim, which doesn't, go to your credibility. Number two, um, the data is pretty clear with respect to what the president said. Uh, maybe almost immune isn't the particular phraseology, but he used directionally correct. And uh, how many posts will stay up if you're going to expunge things that are directionally correct, even if you don't appreciate the specific verbiage to convey something that is true, which are is that COVID-19 from everything everybody in the world knows affects children in a very different way than it affects people of that are older and obviously, as we know, people with comorbidities and the like. I mean, good grief, the number of influenza deaths among children versus COVID-19 deaths, uh, the inability to even identify cases where kids have transmitted the disease to teachers, uh, the incidence of death among children rivaling that of the incidence of death from lightning strikes among children. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Stephen Hatfield, who's a veteran biologist, virologist, excuse me, who helped establish the rapid hemorrhagic fever response teams for the National Medical Disaster Unit in Kenya. Uh, he is an adjunct assistant professor in two departments at the George Washington University Medical Center, where he teaches mass, mass casualty medicine and the principal author of Three Seconds Until Midnight, Preparing for the Next Pandemic. Stephen Hatfield, thanks for joining us, Professor. Appreciate it. Hi. Hi. So why don't we start with this piece that you wrote for RealClearPolitics.com. As a, uh, with respect to uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine and uh, the uh, continuing efforts to have anybody suggesting hydroxychloroquine as a as a therapeutic be uh, removed from the public square. Yeah, it's a very very curious situation that's going on. We're not really sure what's behind the politics of this, but uh, the drug itself is, has shown it to be very very safe. It's uh, on the FDA's list of most dangerous drugs. Um, Tylenol is more dangerous than hydroxychloroquine. It's been around for about 50 years. 
was first used as an anti-malarial. And then uh, around in the 1980s or so, it began to be used for autoimmune disease, such as uh, rheumatoid arthritis and uh, systemic lupus. And uh, in 2005, uh, it was found the original SARS virus that, that broke out in 2003 was found to be effective against that in tissue culture in the laboratory. And uh, this was noted and it was written up. Uh, some CDC scientists uh, had discovered this and uh, they, they wrote a publication on it. And uh, <clears throat> with the outbreak of the, uh, the uh, coronavirus 2, obviously, this looked like uh, a role for the drug. Well, and, and the thing, so, I mean, the thing about this, too, is I, I can understand people suggesting, hey, look, this isn't some panacea. And any, anybody suggesting that it is is wrong. Okay, fine. But the, the, uh, the vituperative response to the, the, the bringing up HCQ, I mean, I, I've talked to emergency room doctors on this show who say, well, I've used it in patients, and it's been helpful. It's not the only thing, but yeah. it's something in some patients with some profile at some stage of the infection. And why can't we just keep it there? Uh, but but, but to, to raise the issue is to be, you know, engaged in black magic the way that the press covers it. Yeah, it's been absolutely ridiculous. And uh, the press, I think, have blood on their hands, seriously, uh, because President Trump seemed to, I don't know, he's incredible. He's, he's been quite aware of um, what's been going on through this thing. And um, the initial studies with this that were done in China and then France, let me tell you where the real role for this drug is and has always been. It's been for the early treatment of infection. I'll tell you what, let's hold it right there. That's what we call it in the business of tease. And you're going to tell us what the real role for the H-hydroxychloroquine is right after we come back with more from Stephen Hatfield, veteran virologist and uh, professor at George Washington University Medical Center where he teaches mass casualty medicine. Back with more of Professor Hatfield later. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Professor Stephen Hatfield, who's a veteran virologist, helped establish the rapid hemorrhagic fever response teams for the National Medical Disaster Unit in Kenya. He's an adjunct assistant professor in two departments at George Washington University Medical Center, where he teaches mass casualty medicine and principal author of Three Seconds Until Midnight, Preparing for the Next Pandemic. And before the break, as we were talking about uh, the usage of hydroxychloroquine versus the media's coverage of its usage, uh, Professor, you were about to tell us what the the real role for hydroxychloroquine is when it comes to COVID-19. Right. COVID-19 is a two-part disease in some people. There's an initial early phase where it's like a head cold, a sore throat, upper respiratory tract infection. Majority of cases, this is what they get, and it's self-limiting. Some people don't even know that, that they're infected. Um, in a small number of patients, about 15%, <clears throat> the infection goes on down and attacks the lungs after about seven days from the time of uh, first symptom onset. 
what's been discovered is if we can treat a patient with hydroxychloroquine within those first seven days from the onset of symptoms, it prevents them from going into this more lethal second stage where initially fluid builds up in the lungs and the patient becomes short of breath. And then a number of really serious things can happen in a small number of those patients. And they can go on to have an overwhelming immune response, uh, which damages their lungs. They start to put blood clots in their microscopic blood vessels in the lungs and really throughout the body. You can have brain damage, kidney damage, and uh, you end up in intensive care on life support and uh, uh, about uh, a ventilator. And about half these patients uh, uh, pass away. They die. If we can get hydroxychloroquine into you within the first uh, seven days of your infection, most patients will not progress into this late phase. What about uh, other uh, what, what about other therapeutics that are uh, discussed, including by the president, remdesivir and dexamethasone? How do those factor into uh, treating a patient that's COVID-19 infected? Remdesivir shows shows um, no change in mortality in late stage COVID patients, uh, like hydroxychloroquine. It, 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 this, there's different pathologies going on that are so severe. No antiviral drug is going to work in these later stages of the disease. Mm-hmm. So it's it's early treatment. And if we look at our national pandemic plan, that's exactly what it's supposed to involve. We find a drug, uh, we get this out, so patients are treated early at home. Now, remdesivir, it has to be IV. You have to be an inpatient in the hospital. Somehow, Fauci and everybody else just got changed around to where they started trying it on hospital patients. The drug was never for that. It was for early use, not the late stage in COVID. And of course, the results have been minimal in in late stage patients. So does remdesivir. Well, how could uh, how could Fauci and Burks and whoever else on the task force be turned around, particularly on hydroxychloroquine, since it's as you point out a drug that has been known and been in use to treat malaria, lupus for half a century. Yeah, I have no idea, mm-hmm. but there really is a, um, a, an overwhelming effort to uh, besiege the drug, to smear it, and um, the press hysterical over it. We call it hydroxy hysteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for you know, it's it's more dangerous to take to take uh, aspirin. Uh, speaking uh, about uh, media-induced hysteria and media hysteria that's projecting outward, uh, I spoke with David Marcus from The Federalist about this uh, yesterday. He wrote a piece about The New York Times 
at the same time, we're all promoting the idea that a vaccine is a real possibility. And, uh, you know, this Operation Warp Speed could do something that's unprecedented in terms of producing a vaccine for this virus in an unbelievably short period of time, relatively speaking. At the same time, the New York Times is suggesting that maybe corners are being cut and so on and so forth. So there's all this um, uh, uh, rallying for a vaccine. At the same time, they're suggesting sort of without foundation, without any evidence that the corners are being cut, which, of course, induces more fear over any vaccine that may come to market about, well, whether should I really take this Were corners cut? I don't want to be the first one to take this. Uh, how do you react to that? Well, it's, you know, uh, it's a legitimate concern uh, with these coronaviruses. And uh, we will get a vaccine eventually, and it will be safe, but this is a process that takes time. In the national pandemic plan, it was always to try to treat people at home. So your doctor diagnoses you. They write a prescription. You go home, you take hydroxychloroquine, and you're miserable for about a week, and you get better. Um, we don't have that now because of, of essentially the press running this epidemic, this pandemic. People are scared of it. Doctors are afraid to prescribe it. Uh, pharmacies won't fill the prescriptions. I've never seen anything like it in my life, and nobody has. Uh, I, A drug that costs uh, pennies. He is Stephen Hatfield, veteran virologist who helped establish the rapid hemorrhagic fever response teams for the National Medical Disaster Unit in Kenya. He's an assistant, uh, adjunct assistant professor in two departments at George Washington University Medical Center, where he teaches mass casualty medicine and the author of, principal author of, Three Seconds Until Midnight, Preparing for the Next, next Pandemic. Professor Hatfield, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. It's time for Dan Prof's parenting tips. Whoa, Dan Prof's parenting tips. Whoa, tell your kids to shut up and listen to him. Your child. Yeah, we haven't had one of these in a while, but I figure uh, across the country there's going to be more quality time with parents and kids with so many school districts doing e-learning only, including at the collegiate level. And, you know, the parenting never stops. Now, again, this is uh, those from the files of those who cannot do teach. So I am not a parent and thus I instruct on parenting. It makes perfect sense to me. Uh, This comes to us from across the pond. Mothers and daughters often have an unbreakable bond. Uh, For some, however, it's much closer than for others. Well, for um, Marsha, 68, and her 21-year-old daughter, Alina, it's uh, difficult to get much closer. I don't know if there are any others. From dressing in identical clothes every day to getting matching plastic surgery, this uh, mom and daughter duo are very, very close. How close? Well, that's that doesn't tell you something. I've got more. 
the uh, 21-year-old, the daughter, Alina, says her mom is definitely her best friend. The pair do everything together, and that starts the moment they wake up and how they wake up, or, well, how baby daughter at the tender age of 21 is woken up. Uh, Mom says uh, she, daughter Elena, kept pestering me for a puppy, and I couldn't get her a puppy, so I turned into the doggy. Elena tastes pretty good and all sweet. I just want to eat her all up. And so every morning, Mom licks her daughter all over, pretending she's the puppy that she couldn't get for her baby girl, age 21, Elena. Now, she was adopted by mom when she was just a toddler. And um, she says, the daughter says, mom's puppy antics make her feel closer to her mom. I love it when my mama licks me. It kind of makes me feel closer to her because we're doing something funny and out of the ordinary. I think we, it's a thing we do every single day. Uh, and then after the licking is completed, the, um, that the day kicks off with a fun game of chasing mom, chasing daughter around the house. Mom says when Elena was very little, she didn't have much stamina. So I'd say, you can't get me. You can't get me. And uh, this was a way, I, I guess, allowing a daughter to chase mom around the house is actually how it goes. This is a way to help her um, uh, increase her stamina. It was a really good thing to help her grow, and it just continued into now her early 20s. Dan Prof's parenting tip on this situation uh, that this relationship raises, uh, just specific to, I'll just leave it at the specific licking like a puppy dog. My parenting tip, don't do that, especially if your son or daughter is 21 years old. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Gallup polling organization. When asked whether they want the police to spend more time, the same amount of time or less time than they currently do in their area, most black Americans, 61%, want the police presence where they live to remain the same. You surprised by that number? This is similar to the 67% of all U.S. adults preferring the status quo, including 71% of white Americans. Meanwhile, nearly equal proportions of black Americans say they would like the police to spend more time in their area, 20%. One in five black Americans want the police to spend less time in their neighborhood. You see, what you have going on here is Alinsky tactics. Make the majority believe their views are those of the minority. So please pass this polling data on to the white sentimental barbarians and assorted defund the police. Hate has no home here. Dingbats in your circles of influence. They are supporting an insular, radical, ignorant minority. 
including within the black community. Overwhelming majority of black Americans want the same or more police presence where they live. Do you get that from watching the D.C. press coverage of these issues? Turns out that the vandals on the streets, no matter if they number in the thousands and a handful of big cities around the country, are not representative of the views of black Americans or any Americans other than themselves. A group of protesters has filed a lawsuit against the city of Seattle claiming the police department's anti-riot tactics have forced demonstrators to buy prohibitively expensive protective gear in order to continue to enjoy their First Amendment rights. Well, you wouldn't need protective gear if you were just enjoying your First Amendment rights of free expression. The protective gear comes in when, of course, you're violently confronting police, you're trying to burn down a courthouse, those sorts of things. Oh, by the way, the city of Seattle and their infinite wisdom, the city council there, has already advanced an ordinance prohibiting police from using rubber bullets and pepper spray to disperse rioters. So I I don't know. Maybe they just want actually the city to pay for protective gear for them. Meanwhile, uh, again, on the silent uh, majority front, the FBI's most recent gun sale figures stunning. In July, the bureau carried out 3.6 million background checks. That's the third highest month on record. Adjusting for to reflect checks only for gun purchases, the National Shooting Sports Foundation says this translates to 1.8 million gun sales for July 2020. That is a 122 percent increase over July of 2019. Gosh, I, I wonder what could account for the difference. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Corey Mills. He's a U.S. Army combat veteran, the founder and CEO of Pace M Solutions International. Uh, he's a defense specialist. Corey, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, you uh, penned a piece for Fox News in which you uh, posed two questions. Um, the first, I think, perhaps being the most um, pressing. How do we continue to recruit and retrain and, and retain, I should say, brave men and women to serve in law enforcement? So how do we? Well, the reality is that you don't. If you are a law enforcement officer in today's you know environment, and especially if you're sitting in you know, under Ted Wheeler or Jenny Durkin or Lori Lightfoot or Bill de Blasio, where they're denigrating you and telling you that you should be guarding graffiti on the ground of Fifth Avenue as opposed to going out and doing something about the 50% increase in gun violence and murders in your city. I mean, how do you retain this? This is why Bill de Blasio and New York City had to cap their retirement. Their retirement was up to 400% retirement applications. You then go ahead and look at Minneapolis. They've now lost 10% of their overall law enforcement, and there's 75 officers who refuse to go back to work claiming PTSD because they know that they're not enabled to do their jobs. So when you're talking about cadets wanting to go into the academy, oh, yeah, let me go into the academy where as soon as I get my badge, I'm going to be told to guard graffiti on the ground that Bill de Blasio helped paint arrest those who oppose the minority. And oh, by the way, if I'm assaulted, I get water dumped on my head or I'm completely belittled. Oh, well, that's okay. Does that sound like a job that you guys want to sign up for? No, of course not. I wanted to get your take on something. I interviewed um, Peter Moskos recently. He's a criminal justice professor at John Jay College in New York. He's also uh, someone who spent 14 months working as a cop in Baltimore. And his uh, one sentence summation of or two sentence summation of what's happening right now. If the goal is to save black lives, it's not working. If the goal is to get rid of police, it's working. I, I want to you know, sort of just remind people what we're focused on and why, as, I, as the, the Gallup results point up, 
why 80 percent of black Americans want the same or more police presence in their neighborhood, because those 80 percent of black Americans are actually interested in having black lives protected, including their own. Exactly. If they're so concerned with the protection and safety and equality of black lives, if black lives truly matter, and it's, we obviously know this is a hijacked cause by Antifa, and you know, we literally have 19, 20-year-old white women yelling at a black officer about how he has such privilege. So, but let's just look past all of the hypocrisy here. You've got, like you talked about, 3.6 million background checks. The urban communities know that, okay, if law enforcement draws down, if the departments are not able to properly recruit, well, there's these off-duty police officers who are going to be hired by these affluent neighborhoods and these gated communities to try and provide that security. But what about those who can't afford to live in those types of neighborhoods? Is their life any less valuable than it is to anyone else? No, of course not. So they're going to take it upon themselves to honor their 2A rights, to be able to defend their families, to be able to defend their own lives, because you've got one-year-old babies being shot in strollers in New York City. You've got nine-year-olds being you know, murdered there in Chicago, and people have had enough of it. And you know, the Democrats are continuing to utilize these people as pawns so they can play their political gamesmanship to try and impact the economy. Let, let me put this into greater perspective. In Iraq right now, they've had something going on since the October Revolution, all right, where people are just tired of corruption. They're tired of the nonsense, and they're protesting in a peaceful, democratic manner and being targeted by the government in some cases and being shot with live ammunition. Now, they're actually able to make change, effectuate progress, and get rid of a prime minister without ever having to complete any violence whatsoever. But we're the civil society, but we're the benchmark of where the world needs to be looking when our law enforcement officers are doing their best to keep the peace, while the protesters, the demonstrators, the rioters are the ones who are actually creating the violence, and it's being encouraged by the left. I mentioned this to Peter Moskos, but I want to get your take as well. Uh, I'm watching... uh the uh, fifth season of Last Chance You on Netflix. And don't tell me how it ends. I'm, I'm on the penultimate episode. Uh, but on, on the, the, the second to last episode, um, they, they profile, it's Laney College, Community College in Oakland is the focus. They profile this Oakland cop. He's driving around and he's basically, he's a black cop, tells uh, you know what's happened to Oakland over the years that he's been policing the streets, how it's being gentrified now, how he likes the gentrification in the sense that uh, there's been, crime reduction. There's less nonsense going on. But he also recognizes it makes it difficult for people to fit into the community and some people are being forced out and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's always complicated. One of the things he said about police was really interesting. I thought, you know, that the sort of street smarts you would get from a cop is something he noticed. You know, your your uh, elected officials, you don't get to confront them, generally speaking. He says, you can't go complain or berate Nancy Pelosi, if you don't like something that's going on. But me, I'm right out on the street with you. I'm the I'm essentially the face and the presence of government in most people's lives. So if you've got a problem with government, you're going to take it out on me, the police officer, because you can't get to uh, you can't get to the politicians. And I thought, boy, that's such an insight in terms of uh, how police are viewed, I think, by a lot of people, number one. And number two, it also provides some commentary on how distant and out of touch and uh, we have in terms of this ruling class of politicians. No, that, that, that's actually a really insightful look at things. And, and, and I can totally see how people's unhappiness, whether it be with the economy, whether it be with the elected officials, is taken out on these law enforcement officers because they see them as a portrayal or a representation of that office. But, 
you know, the sad part is, is that these police chiefs that are elected positions, these, you know, mayors, these governors, you know, they're responsible for the tactics, techniques, funding, reform, whatever you want with, with regards to how unhappy you are with how the law enforcement may or may not be handling things. They're the ones responsible for it. And it's just funny to me that these very people who are pointing thousands of miles away at the White House, blaming it on the federal you know, government, are truly the ones that are you know, pulling the red herring technique across everyone's face going, hey, it's not me, even though I'm responsible for the budget, I'm responsible for the decisions being made, I'm responsible and elected into this office to keep you guys safe. It's not me. It's the White House. It's the Republicans. And, you know, I'm looking around the country and I'm thinking, you know, I talk to a law enforcement officer who's in a predominantly, you know, Republican based, you know, county as opposed to a Democratic based county. And they're seeing totally different things. And so for, for someone to tell me that this isn't politically motivated, I, I'm sorry, I can't I can't buy into that because in police work, they call it a clue. He is Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of PASEM Solutions International and PASEM Defense LLC. Corey. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And last week when uh, some of the big tech CEOs were present and accounted for before the House on the Hill, you had uh, Sundar Pichai from Google, you had your Jeff Bezos from Amazon, you had your Mark Zuckerberg, and uh, Jim Jordan had a message for those big tech CEOs. Jack Dorsey from Twitter, notably absent. I'll just cut to the chase. Big tech's out to get conservatives. That's not a suspicion. That's not a hunch. That's a fact. July 20th, 2020, Google removes the homepages of Breitbart and the Daily Caller. Just last night, we learned Google has censored Breitbart so much, traffic has declined 99%. June 16th, 2020, Google threatens to demonetize and ban the Federalists. April 19th, 2020, Google and YouTube announce a policy censoring the content that conflicts with recommendations of the World Health Organization. Now think about that. The World Health Organization, the organization that lied to us, the organization that shielded for China... And if you contradict something they say, they can say whatever they want. They can lie for China. They can chill for China. You say something against them, you get censored. Yeah, and uh, that continues, uh, particularly in the COVID-19 space. It's not just they're out to get conservatives. They're also out to advance the left's party line, whatever that may be, on whatever topic that may be. And so uh, we had uh, Trump social media posts taken down yesterday that talk about how Unlikely it is for children, for young people, for students in the context of school reopenings to uh, be infected, much less to be seriously ill if they are infected with COVID-19, which is true. I mean, in the sense that uh, there is very limited incidence of fatality. The uh, incidence of fatality among school age kids is something like the incidence of fatality among the same age group of being struck by lightning. You also have social media platforms uh, censoring out uh, conversations from practitioners even. Forget Don Trump Jr., forget the politicians. Actual practitioners, medical doctors talking about therapeutics, potential therapeutics that have been approved for emergency use 
uh, for COVID-19, like hydroxychloroquine. Why? Because Trump has promoted it. And so where are we with big tech and the suppression, not just of political speech, but of scientific speech, not just from politicians, but from actual medical professionals and public health professionals. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Liam Deacon, Brexit Party's former comm director. Liam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi there. Great to have you. And uh, so you, you uh, wrote this piece on the topic for uh, Spiked Online, which is an outlet that uh, I'm enjoying more and more as I read it more and more. Um, and, uh, and and so I'll offer your perspective uh, on what you're seeing from big tech, even though they they haven't been whistled before your government quite yet. Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like uh, from the segment that you just played that you're well aware of the ongoing problems to do with big tech, increasingly wading in uh, to democratic discussions going online and deciding what is and isn't an acceptable opinion and anything that is, you know, deemed unacceptable is, 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 is effectively censored because it's deemed to be hate. Um, but the article that I've written, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a well-known phenomenon. It's been going for a while. The article I've written uh, is highlighting the fact that, that this sort of uh, campaign of censorship has taken a really quite a serious and dark turn um, during the coronavirus uh, crisis, whereby the tech companies have moved from censoring just social and political points of views to actually intervening in scientific debates as well. Um, this is a this is a big big step that I don't think really has been considered. Um, so you, we've seen a whole series of scientists uh, who have actually been shut down. There was a, there was a very famous uh, British scientist called Kyle Sicaro who has been removed. Kurt um, Winterkowski was his some of his stuff was removed. And then there were two British journalists, one called Peter Hitchens and one called Toby Young. All of these people have basically been advancing what I would call COVID sceptical points of view, uh, you know, across a range of areas. And, 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 and they were variously either shadow banned, completely removed or removed and then reinstated. And, and, and I think what, what the people who are supporting this censorship really have failed to understand is how the scientific method works. You know, and this is what the article is about, that some of the most important uh, scientific breakthroughs of our time have come from people who were at one point or another considered wacky or in a minority. Um, in, in the article, I mentioned that Copernicus was considered crazy when he proposed that it was the Earth going around the sun instead of the sun going, uh, the Earth or, or the other way around even, um, excuse me, um, and, and that, you know, and, and, and that, you know, that, that even Einstein himself was considered completely mental when he put forward the theory of relativity. And, and that even if um, these people that are, even Trump, if he's wrong about uh, this drug uh, that he's been taking, even if he's completely wrong about it, you know, I, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to take a, a definitive view on that either way. Um, but even if he's wrong about it, uh, you know, a, a YouTube monitor or, a, or Jack Dorsey at the top of Twitter has no right, no right in a Western society to shut down a, a, a legitimate point of view on a scientific topic, you know, and and and, and that actually the Twitter might argue that Trump is provo per, um, promoting a false narrative that will cause people to believe false things, but it is more dangerous to have a situation where you know 
only certain views are, are sanctioned because you know what, as a, because of the examples I've just spoken about, sometimes those minority views turn out to be correct. And even if they don't turn out to be correct, they strengthen sort of a democratic debate that goes on within the scientific community. Um, and it's all about having a free and open society and a, and, and, and a right to be wrong, okay? And if the, if, 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 the, if the tech companies remove our right to be wrong and our right to inquire and give our opinions opposite, we take a very dark turn towards a society like China's, where only certain opinions are allowed to be spoken. Now, you may say that these are private companies, private tech companies, and so what if they decide what can and can't be said on their platforms? You can go elsewhere and take your opinions elsewhere. You know, that's another um, consequence of living in a free society, that private companies have a right to decide who and who can use their service. That's, that's a fair point. I hear that point. But the problem with that is that the tech companies have a monopoly over certain, certain, certain markets. They have a complete monopoly over global online discourse, okay? Between Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, they have a complete monopoly over global online discourse. And, and, and these companies are essentially ran, run by four or five liberally-minded Californian-based CEOs, okay? And it is not an acceptable situation where five liberally-minded people get to essentially control and mediate global scientific discourse because they it could equally be as wrong as Trump is about these issues and could skew uh, open inquiry and essentially shut down you know uh, what potentially could be a huge scientific breakthrough. That is well, not an acceptable point of view. When we come back with the former head of press for Brexit, Liam Deacon, uh, discuss what may be happening to uh, the big tech companies uh, from a policy perspective across the pond in the UK and Europe. More with Liam Deacon when we come back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Liam Deacon on the Dan Prof Show. And, uh, Liam, I wanted to get your take on what you see happening in America with respect to discussions about uh, removing exemptions for defamation suits, of arguments that are being made from both political parties to break up some of these companies. Um, what mm. is go- what's uh, the conversation like in England uh, based on the, some of the, the points that you're raising as well as uh, also concerns of market concentration, as you were describing? Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned that. Just two weeks ago, uh, a body in the United Kingdom called the Competitions and Markets Authority um, released a very long report into how how, how to basically address these monopolies. And they came up with a very interesting uh, solution, which wasn't, um, I I think, too authoritarian. Basically, the idea that they they gave was that the data that Google and Facebook holds on all of us should be shared. Um, and that would allow competitors to start up competing services. Because the problem is that, that you can't start a rival Google um, because you don't have a huge amount of data um, to make that service 
sort of function. Um, and and it's, it's a similar problem that's basically all the advertising revenue that Google and Facebook gobble up um, that should really be going to newspapers and to news outlets is all absorbed by uh, Facebook and Google because they can target ads so accurately because they hold all this data. Um, so basically, the argument is that that data should be open sourced. So rival search engines, rival newspapers can use that data. Um, now, there's a debate going on whether or not that, that compromises the sort of um, the intellectual property rights of those private companies. But the, I think the counter argument to that would be that, you know, data is not like an everyday uh, commodity. Data is something that a lot of us gave to these companies, not realizing how precious and how valuable that commodity is. And is it really their product now? Is, is, do they own our data? And that's a very um, sort of uh, important question that I think Western societies need to deal with going forward. Who owns our data? Do we own that data? Or does Google and Facebook own that data? Um, so I think that's one question that we need to consider. I, I'm not going to pretend to have the answer to that question. It's a very complicated question, how we address these monopolies. Uh, the European Union is actually has, has floated the idea of actually breaking up Google um, or, or, or its, its European subsidiary, which is based in Ireland. Um, I think that is wrong. I don't think uh, a, a government organization really should be breaking up successful companies um, uh, in that kind of way. But I do think we need to think uh, critically about this, especially for you guys in America with your election coming up this year. Um, as you mentioned, Google has been found very, very clearly altering uh, the search results um, in, 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 in certain topics. I mean, in this country, we have a newspaper called The Guardian. It's very left-leaning. And you can search some topics, uh, and all of the top search results will be, you know, articles from this one newspaper. Um, and this newspaper is selling hardly any papers. And, it, you know, it, I think it, it, it's clear to me, at least, that, that Google alone is keeping this one left-leaning newspaper essentially alive. It's a direct huge amount of traffic to that. Is that right? I don't know. You know, is that an acceptable point of view? And, and I think, I think that, that the only solution to this is to have more competitors to Google and Facebook with a diverse range of political outlooks and leanings. Um, and so the only thing that I can say to your readers is that if you don't like this um, settlement, if you feel uneasy about the control that big tech has over uh, science, as I wrote, but also politics, you should start using alternative services. There's a few that I can name now. There's one called DuckDuckGo, um, which is a search engine that's there to use Bing, uh, Microsoft alternative uh, to Google. I use that sometimes, and I find actually I get more impartial results through Bing than I do from Google in, in, in political results. Um, and there's obviously that new alternative to Twitter, which I know is more successful in the U.S. than it has been here in England, uh, called Parler. Um, so it's up to you, the consumer, really, to reach out and start using different services, um, I think. And, and, and that would be really uh, the best solution to this, is that the government doesn't have to intervene in the market. The market corrects itself. Um, and us consumers lead the way by actually moving to services that we think are fairer and better. He is Liam Deacon. He is Brexit Party's former head of press. His piece in Spiked Online, Big Tech is Suppressing Science. I will tweet out at Dan Proft. Liam, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights, and you raise a lot of good questions. Thank you very much for having me.
a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We'll be talking about uh, the purge in uh, more detail and from perhaps more of an intellectual perspective with Anthony Esselin this next hour. But uh, a couple of good pieces on uh, going woke. What do, and, and frankly, what doesn't does does not get you canceled. Op-ed uh, from our friend Walter Block, who's, uh, by the way, facing cancellation at Loyola University in New Orleans, as we talked about with him last week, I think, yeah, recently. Uh, Dave Seminera, friend of the show writing uh, on in the Wall Street Journal about what to do when your favorite companies go woke and don't go broke. And, of course, uh, this is happening in every sector, including, as we're seeing in spectacular colors, professional sports. Uh, he writes, uh, not long ago, the terms corporate America and corporate culture were synonymous with staid country club Republican values. <laughs> no longer. It hadn't been that way for a long time, but I think everybody is now taking judicial notice of that truth. That uh, C-suite executives, the C stands for cultural Marxist uh, these days, as far as I'm concerned. Starting with my morning coffee, right, seminar, I love La Colomba, or Colombe, but was dismayed when the company joined the Facebook advertiser boycott, which is now nearly 1,000 companies. Facebook, 1,000 companies signing up to boycott Facebook for not doing enough to combat hate speech. Mark Zuckerberg. I went to their website. And saw a banner on the homepage advertising a limited edition coffee and mug with proceeds supporting the ACLU. And uh, he said, I switched to D for T for a couple of days, then got curious and looked at the website of Numi, my favorite tea company. I learned that Numi stands in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and the anti-police terror project, among others. Now I'm drinking water with breakfast. <laughs> it's going to be re- reduced to bread and water. I don't even know about the bread and certainly not necessarily the uh, bottled water. It should be ironic that La Colombe is one of, on the one hand boycotting Facebook for failing to censor enough content and on the other supporting an organization that's supposed to protect civil liberties. Although it's not really an irony because the ACLU, as Seminar well knows, is not really interested in protecting everybody's civil liberties, just some people's. Uh, he, uh, you know, goes through the other sectors that are suffering from the, the suffering from this Marxist virus themselves. But he uh goes on to say, look, the, the corporate cultural, this corporate cultural revolution comes at a time when Republicans control the White House and the Senate. Imagine what America would be like with a blue wave in November. Yeah, that's something that um, perhaps the Trump campaign should be uh, raising as uh, raising for consideration. I don't expect or want corporate America to embrace conservative causes. The March for Life shouldn't be brought to you by New Balance. Unlike liberals, most conservatives don't try to bully and boycott companies that cross us. If I stopped buying products from old companies, I'd be eating nothing but Goya food and wearing loincloths made from Mike Lindell's pillows. And what a sporting loincloth that would be, Dave. But we should politely let companies that offend us know how we feel. In that spirit, I sent La Colombe a nice note asking them to stick to roasting coffee. Uh-oh. Isn't that like uh, Laura Ingram telling Kevin Durant to just shut up and dribble? A gentleman named Sam wrote back to thank me for my feedback. The next day, the company sent a tweet to Crow that it was sold out of its ACLU coffee. You just can't win. But his point is a, is a fair one. Um, register the dissent. Um, look for substitutes or alternatives. It's, it's all well and good. And it's the market response to uh, 
conduct that you don't find particularly enlightened. That's no problem. Um, but understand something, too, that uh, these companies aren't necessarily on board with the neo-Marxism of the Black Lives Matter organization or the uh, intolerance of the D.C. press corps, the Jacobin thuggery on the streets of big cities, the anti-police posture of big city mayors. Not necessarily important. They're just paying tribute so they're left alone because, as Seminar points out, conservatives don't present the threat that the left does. They don't go for the jugular like the left does. They're sort of a live and let live, let people, even while the left pretends to be live and let live. They're not, of course, as we've seen. But what are conservatives to do? Because just because you want to be a peaceful pluralist, you got a problem if your neighbor doesn't. Hmm. Worthy of some consideration. And uh, I want to get to Professor Block's piece as well to uh, point up just exactly who gets canceled and who doesn't or uh, who, you know, whose profession and livelihood is targeted and who is not. Uh, Hating humanity won't get you canceled. It's funny, too, because you have them, the left, making the case that Anything to save a life. I go back to that phrase a lot because it's used. We're trying to save lives here. I'm in the business of saving lives. I can't worry about the economy. I can't worry about your kid's education. I'm too busy saving lives. They're sort of pro-life, aren't they? Except, of course, they're not because they're saving some lives at the or moving in the direction of protecting, providing for, focusing on some lives to the exclusion of many, many other lives. Disproportionate, I would say. They want to pretend that we don't live in a world of trade-offs. I can just be myopic and everybody will only look where I'm looking. They won't expand their vision to see the trade-offs that are being made. But they will. Some will. And some won't. They're not pro-life. And this is a group whose philosophical disposition is to hate human beings per the uh, apocalyptic environmentalism that preceded their lockdown politics as their religion. Walter Block uh, reintroduces some of us, probably introduces to most of us, David Graeber, who is a UC Berkeley biologist. Until such time as Homo sapiens should decide to rejoin nature, some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. Professor Graeber pronounced in 1989, 30 years ago. Hey, he's in luck, right? Uh, he uh, was so eager for masses of human beings to drop dead because human happiness is not as important as a wild and healthy planet, wrote Professor Graeber. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, similar to Peter Singer at uh, the bioethicist at Princeton, <laughs> who supports infanticide, disabled children. Mm-hmm. True story. Uh, is there a mob action to drive him from Princeton's campus any more than there was to drive Graeber from Berkeley's? Of course not. And, but, but these are the people you think are going to save Western civilization for you that are just fear-stricken and not ideological? You think that they have your interests at heart? You think they're making for a better world for your family? Are you looking at this closely enough? Seems not. Later that night when his lights went out of sight Came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald 
listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, wearing masks as cargo cult thinking. This uh, very good piece in American Thinker by Jeffrey Ricker. The magical thinking that is uh, being done at the same time that uh, therapeutics like HCQ are dismissed out of hand, uh, rather than provide, rather than put in context of the the benefits and the and the risks. Uh, things like mask wearing is um, touted as uh, the way to save Western civilization. Is it? Is it? Jeffrey Ricker makes an important point. Believing in science does not mean accepting anything a scientist says. Quite the opposite. The scientific principle actually means being skeptical. Those who uh, want to end scientific debates are the men and women who don't believe in science or reason, for that matter, because the debate is never over, because it's a process of constant discovery. Have we not seen that play itself out in COVID-19, the things we thought and, and, and the suppositions that were made in February and March that proved to be untrue or at least inaccurate. Uh, Ricker goes on to talk about um, mask wearing, you know, as this um, the, the symbol of whether or not you are civilized, your adherence to rigid mask policy. I've seen articles quoting scientists and doctors. I've heard anecdotal evidence. I've heard logical arguments for a policy of public masks and against it. I've read scientific papers that show correlation by country between public mask policies and lower infection rates. I've read papers that show no such correlation. I also know that correlation is not the same thing as causation. What I have not seen is proof. The common man's zealotry for masks does not come from rigorous scientific analysis. It comes from baser forces. For the most part, it seems to come from a sincere desire to do what's right. And that's fine. For a subset, it comes from a desire to feel better about oneself by doing something one believes is right or important. For an even smaller subset, it's about being perceived by others as a better person. Yes, the sanctimonious subset. Cargo cult thinking, the term he uses, which is a great one. I haven't heard it used in a long time. This uh, describes the behavior anthropologists observed in Polynesia after the Second World War. The natives called all manufactured goods that Americans had brought cargo. The cargo came on planes. When the Americans abruptly left the islands, the natives mimicked the behavior of the ground crews on the runway in the belief that their actions would magically make the airplanes come back with more cargo. The parallel? The common man has seen doctors and nurses. He's seen that doctors and nurses wear masks when working with patients. What he has not seen is the training and discipline that doctors and nurses apply to those masks to assure that they are sterile and thereby effective. The common man, by contrast, is wearing the same dirty mask in public for days, touching it and adjusting it with his unsterilized hands and laying it on the counter, shoving it in his pocket when he's done. He might as well climb into a tree and wave palm leaves to have planes bring him cola and chocolate. Everyone is entitled to their personal beliefs, concludes Ricker. I only ask that people be self-aware enough to distinguish between a personal belief and a scientific fact. If I'm about to fall off a ledge, by all means, lecture me on the law of gravity. On the other hand, if I'm about to walk down the sidewalk without a mask, please keep your personal beliefs to yourself. This is Dan Frost. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft Show as well. Uh, there are some academics, uh, authors, intellects who, um, sh- who you should read everything they write because they've read everything. Uh, one of those is Tony Eslin, and uh, he has this uh, excellent piece, which I referenced the other day at uh, amgreatness.com, uh, where he uh, uh, references both Solson Heenson and Vitterini in a conversation about the uh, cultural fascism, really, that is taking hold in some respects in the West, including America. And uh, since uh, he's a little bit better at distilling Solson Heenson and Vitterini than I am and making it accessible, I thought, we, why don't we invite him back and let's have a conversation about it? So that's what we've done. Tony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of Liberal Arts, senior editor for Touchstone Magazine and author of Out of the Ashes and Nostalgia, joins us now. Tony, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's always great to be here. Um, I, I'm, I, I know you uh, reference in your piece uh, Solson Heenson's The Cancer War, but as I was reading it, I was thinking of a passage from Gulag Archipelago uh, where he, uh, he said uh, at, a point, at a certain point he was unsure if uh, he even had the right to talk about the events of his own life in uh, communist Russia. And, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if we're there yet quite in America, but um, that seems to be where this is going, where everything, even your own experiences, need to, you know, pass uh, normative muster with the mob. Right, right. Um, it, it, I've, I've been reading, uh, I've been reading literature from, uh, from fascist Italy and uh, uh, Soviet, Soviet Russia, and also literature about Nazi Germany and the, the parallels, the spiritual parallels around Canny, um, the, the the fear, the terror that's instilled in ordinary people. Uh, you know, you have to go along with with this philosophy. Um, you have to say this. You have to say that. You've got to put out a sign, right? Uh, Václav Havel um, talks about. Um, the shopkeeper the, is is a great example of somebody who resists the totalitarian state. He refuses to put a sign in his shop window that everybody is supposed to put in the window. It's so one little act of uh, disobedience there puts the crack in the whole totalitarian system. But um, uh, in, in general, people go along. People go along because they're persuaded, or they go along out of fear, uh, or they go along because they they don't want to give a damn otherwise, right? Um, but they go along. They're conformists. Um, they allow themselves to be bullied into saying what everybody else is saying, uh, or at least keeping their mouth shut, as, not, not to disagree. And, and as you describe it, it's an ever-present opportunity to, your words, dress your pride and envy up in political colors and turn hatred itself into a virtue. Oh, yes, right. So uh, I'm driving to school, uh, uh, and the uh, school is only a couple miles from my front door, so I don't have much of an opportunity to see such things. But sure enough, one pops up a sign in someone's yard saying, hate has no place here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, immediately 
you know that hate, in fact, does have quite a place there. <laughs> uh, animosity towards one's neighbors has a place. Uh, pride certainly has a place. The desire to put other people down, um, even to kind of strong arm them into silence or uh, to make them show their colors, too. Uh, hate does have a place there. It's amazing that somebody could be so blinkered as not to see uh, what he himself or she herself was doing. Uh, I thought of the same kind of thing in Concord. Um, now, we haven't had riots in uh, New Hampshire, but um, driving down the middle of Concord a few weeks ago, I see a big sign in a storefront um, saying minority-owned Black Lives Matter, and I know that the sign is there partly out of fear. That is, if you do come to Concord and you want to throw rocks through people's windows, don't throw rocks through our window. Throw them through my neighbor's window. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but this is of the very essence of fascism. It's amazing to me that people don't... Um, don't see this. Right? Well, and, 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 and part of this, too, that the, this is sort of um, the other side of the coin of the snitch culture. And that's why I thought um, uh, your reference to Solson Heenson's The Cancer Ward and to the Rusinov character was so yeah. timely. It, so, so explain the Rusinov character and, and the relation to the snitch culture that we're starting to see around the country. By the way, state-sponsored snitch culture, too, to you know m make the parallel even more salient, where you have hotlines and uh, politicians saying, please do tell on your neighbor. It's, it's uh, uh, terrifying, actually, yeah. So uh, Solzhenitsyn, who is, his cancer ward is semi-autobiographical, Solzhenitsyn himself was uh, uh, had gone to the been sent to the labor camps after World War II in Siberia. He got out of the labor camps because he had um, he had uh, stomach cancer, I think it was. Um, they thought it was inoperable. He gets sent to um, well, not to the labor camp, but one of the cities in central Russia, um, and he was cured uh, there. He didn't he still hadn't had the faith yet when he wrote Cancer Ward. I think he had return to the Orthodox faith. But anyway, he, he, uh, the ca cancer ward is set in uh, a particular time. It's about one year after the death of Stalin. And um, uh, one of the patients in the ward, a new arrival, giving everybody else trouble he, because he's high and mighty. He thinks he's a, he's a great person in party politics. Um, he thinks he is anyway. Uh, he's made his career by ratting on other people, including a former friend that he shared an apartment with. He did this all during the Stalin years. And uh, as I said, you know, he made his way being a rat, uh, being a snitch. And now it's one year after Stalin's death, and it's ominous to him because they aren't celebrating everywhere in Soviet Russia the anniversary. They aren't celebrating. Uh, there's there's a sort of ominous silence regarding Stalin, and that makes him afraid because he knows that he fears that the political winds are changing, and you know what goes round comes round, and uh, you know why 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 are we not uh, memorializing the great man? And it turns out that uh, his former friend, whom he had ratted on, when he shared an apartment with him has been set free. He's still alive. 
and he's been rehabilitated. So this guy is afraid now that people will turn on him. All right. And we see the kind of character that this person is. The people who do this to other people, who rat on them because they have the wrong political position, uh, try to get their lives ruined. These are cowards and bullies. Um, they, they have no sympathy, really, for common people. Um, and uh, when the winds change, then they start to shake. They start to, you know, wet their pants, things like that. Um, but it, 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 he's, he's nailed that kind of character. Um, that's the kind we got. We've got him everywhere now. And um, Ilio Vittorini, writing about fascism in his book, uh, Conversation in Sicily, um, has these two fascist uh, uh, interrogators, fascist informants, talking to each other in the corridor of a train, whispering to each other about uh, a man who had just gotten off the train, who was complaining about hunger and the government. And they say to each other, you know, it's lucky we're on vacation here, lucky for him, because if we weren't on the train, we would have to arrest him, right? For saying the wrong things. And, so that's and, where and, we are and, and because as because they, they see him that the hungry man, and this is sort of interesting too, it's insightful, they see the hungry man as a dangerous person. You would think, oh, a hungry man, well, this is somebody who couldn't hurt anybody. But he's a dangerous person because what's he doing? He's complaining. He's not, uh, he's complaining, he's not hewing yeah. the orthodoxy. Yeah, and, and the, the motto of Mussolini, which I quote in the article, was um, everything within the state, nothing outside the state, and nothing against the state. Well, if, if you say the personal is the political, then basically you've just bought Mussolini's dictum right there. I want to I want to hold it there and uh, pick up when we come back because you have this uh, this great uh, questionnaire uh, of sorts uh, how you can tell if you have the soul of a fascist uh, everybody should forget cognitive tests everybody should have to fill this this uh, uh, Q and A out more with Anthony Esselin professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts senior editor for Touchstone Magazine we'll be back after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Tony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, senior editor for Touchstone Magazine, and author of Out of the Ashes and Nostalgia, which are both excellent reads and uh, still time, very timely reads. Uh, Tony, we were talking before the break about uh, the soul of a fascist. And before I get to some of the questions that you laid out in your piece, I want to go back to something you said at the outset uh, about um, the words to the effect of people who have lost their way, have lost any sort of spiritual grounding, uh, religious grounding. And um, and this this notion that uh, because there's a lot of talk right now, including from some on the center left, like Andrew Sullivan uh, writing about uh, the uh, rejection of reason in 2020 in the West in 2020, but it seemed, but he won't go as far back as I think he needs to go. And it reminded me of the, uh, the saying that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. 
in other words, yeah. right? And and the idea yeah. that, that reason is being dispensed with because faith has been dispensed with, and I don't think that enough people get that connection. I uh, know very few people get that connection. Pope Benedict, uh, uh, Emeritus Pope Benedict, got that connection, right? I mean, he, he understood that um, once you get rid of faith, reason is soon to follow. Um, and in fact, very very few professors themselves outside of the natural sciences, perhaps, uh, believe in reason anymore. Um, professors at colleges do not consider that they're in the pursuit of truth with one of their tools being reason. Reason is suspect because everything, everything is being um, subordinated to political, uh, political desires, political appetite. And political appetites generally are bad, uh, I think. We're not talking about some pleasant, rational pursuit of the common good. We're talking about enmity, um, factionalism, hatred, envy, and so forth, right? Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, we, no, we, don't have, we, <laughs> we don't have plenty of people out there who believe in reason. Um, just think, if, if you believed in reason, then whenever you are a uh, addressing any uh, social or political issue, you just have to say, okay, everybody, okay, calm down. Um, check your passions at the door, or at least tamp them down for a while, because we've got to discuss this issue with farsightedness and, equable, and with equable minds um, and dispassionately. And nobody can do that anymore. It's all hysteria. It's all sloganeering. The, the Senate used to be called the world's greatest deliberative body. They haven't deliberated anything on anything in years, not that I can see. Um, it's all it's all grandstanding, posing, shouting. Uh, not, not much reason. And in the, and, I'm sorry to interrupt, but and in the time of pandemic now, uh, what substitutes for reason? Our appeals to authority, uh, follow the science and the data, the science, the science. You just repeat that like a magical incantation. Yep. And if you disagree with any conclusion gleaned from some of the science, then you're, you know, you're an apostate and you're a, a, a troglodyte who doesn't believe in science and data. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. Uh, I try to re- remind people that uh, scientists are men such as we are. Um, they are pack animals. Um, they, uh, they, they are prone to the same kinds of mistakes that other people make. Uh, they dig in their heels once they've staked out a position. Uh, they don't want themselves, they don't want to go where the data leads. They go where their preconceptions lead. Um, and, of course, they have interests in the old sense of the word. They have a stake in things which they don't often want to acknowledge. Uh, and that, that will also change the way they interpret things, right? Because they, they, you know, they're not impartial, but they're not gods. Um, they're human beings full of the same human passions and follies that the rest of us are, are full of, right? Um, and, of course, they can only decree um, wisely or not wisely, but... Properly, they can only decree on a narrow band of things. That is what falls directly under their purview as scientists. What the social good is, um, that's another matter entirely. That's a political issue. And they're there no more expert than anybody. 
I wanted to uh, go back now to uh, what I referenced before the break, this uh, the series of questions you uh, uh, included in your most recent piece at amgreatness.com. Uh, how can you tell if you have the soul of a fascist? And it, uh, it struck me as something else you said before that we've discussed, too. It's like, you know, the, the, the citizen of good faith and good nature isn't always on the lookout for opportunities to jackpot his neighbor. And it seems to me that's that's sort of contained in some of these questions. You mentioned one uh, during uh, the our previous conversation. Uh, the personal is political. So that means everything uh, revolves around the state. Uh, that's yeah. that's one leading indicator. Um, some of the other leading indicators, just sort of an everyday disposition. It doesn't need to be sanctioned by the state. It doesn't even need to be on, on behalf of the state, but just a disposition that is um, – uh, that that runs counter to a notion of a peaceful pluralist society. Yeah, well, uh, let's say that you are a person who uh, seeks occasion to condemn other people, specific other people. We're not talking about generalities here, but you 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 snoop, you find fault, okay, and you are quick to interpret somebody's words in the worst way. You got the soul of a fascist, or you're developing the soul of a fascist. If you take delight in exposing other people, you're you're not going to have the soul of a fascist. You're practicing the habits of a fascist by that time. Uh, It's it's startling to me, but then I I guess uh, academics are not known generally for their uh, self-knowledge. But uh, academics can breathe the word anti-fascism and five minutes later act like perfect fascists running down comments that a fellow professor made on a Facebook chat uh, or, or Twitter in order to expose him to the world and have him fired, well, that's what fascists do, right? That's what, and, and, and you know, these people who do that sort of thing, minding other people's business, are generally the biggest cowards around. They get away with it um, because... Uh, their opponents are disunited. They're afraid to stand up to them. Uh, they've got power behind their backs. I mean, nobody would do this sort of thing in Mussolini's Italy, except that there was Mussolini. And nobody would do this thing in our current uh, academic institutions, except that there is the equivalent of Mussolini. Um, all these administrative people who, who, who want um, that sort of thing to happen and will reward the tail bearers, will reward the snitches um, instead of condemning them, instead of saying, what the heck kind of a rat think are you to do this? Do you not understand uh, that we are in the pursuit of truth? If you have an argument to make against what he said, uh, if you want to argue that it is not true, make that argument. If not, then shut up and don't bother us. But they don't say that. They're, They're eager to do their little fascist step, uh, too. He is Professor Anthony Esselin, a writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, senior editor for Touchstone Magazine, author of books including Out of the Ashes and Nostalgia. Tony, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. An interesting journalism study out of the University of Illinois. The authors Nikki Usher and Yi Man Margaret Ng looked at Twitter and clusters of journalists on Twitter. Nine clusters of journalists or communities of practice in their study. This published online by the journal Social Media and Society. The elites slash legacy cult are the largest, including about 30 percent of the journalists covered in the study with The Washington Post, NBC News, NPR, New York Times, among the major newsrooms represented. Congressional journalism cluster and so forth. Uh, One of the professors, uh, Nikki Usher, Twitter seemed the ideal way to understand how journalists connect to and learn from each other and establish conventional knowledge. That was the impetus. Most of the time, what happens on Twitter does not reflect the real world. But in the case of political journalism and political elites, generally speaking, what happens on Twitter is reality. It's an online reflection of their offline lives and work, she said, and plays a significant role in agenda setting. So this was a particularly potent way of looking at scale at how ideas are exchanged and how people are making sense of things. And then the at scale part is where the other professor, Ng, comes in. That's she's a more of the econometrician, apparently. Usher's research had been more of the qualitative variety. Bottom line, with more than 2,000 journalists in the study, we could not observe each of them individually in real life, so we used their digital life as a way to understand how they interact with the peer, with their peers. The final data set consisted of 133,000-plus Twitter posts from more than 2,000 journalists, about one-third of all credentialed congressional correspondents. What they find? That uh, they're even more insular than you think. More than 68% of the cluster members' Twitter interactions were with, with other journalists were within their group. The, uh, one of the authors, uh, Professor Usher, that also may mean they're not engaging in the same kind of way with the people who are actually on the ground getting these sorts of uh, congressional microscopes. They're not engaging with the journalists who are the policy wonks. It, it, also, it was also really, in, I was also really intrigued, as she says, to see that there, were, there was a television producer cluster where Fox was in the mix with ABC and CBS, which might explain why we tend to see a lot of the same faces on TV news programs. There was another cluster labeled as CNN because more than half its members were CNN journalists. Much of the conversation related to network stories and personalities, which Professor Usher found problematic. CNN is telling a story about what's happening with CNN, and that is worrisome. Maybe that's an organizational branding strategy, but I think potentially it has deleterious effects for public discourse. Overall, Usher thinks their findings add concerns about journalist Twitter use. Political journalists in D.C. are people who use Twitter all day. And so the question is, what does that do to how they think about the world? And generally, from this paper and a previous one I did on gender and beltway journalism, it seems like it can make things worse. Well, that dovetails wonderfully into this piece in Quillette that I referenced earlier in the week by Thomas Moeller Nielsen, Journalism's Death by a Thousand Tweets. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Philosophy PhD, that's who is based in Moscow currently, Thomas Moeller Nielsen. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me on. You can't be surprised by the conclusions of these uh, researchers at the University of Illinois, can you? No, not at all. I think it's certainly the case that Twitter in general has had a seriously negative effect on, on, on the journalism impression and indeed on wider society. I mean, in fact, as I argue in the piece, I mean, if you wanted to design a digital platform that was completely antithetical to the aims of the journalism profession, I don't think you could have done much much better or, or worse, depending upon how you think of it, than, uh, than Twitter. And why do you say that? Well, because, so, I mean, if in the piece, so I talk about these sort of, uh, if, if you wanted, if your goal was to attempt to sort of destroy the journalism profession, you'd want to do three things. So the first is not to try to, to have your main goal to be not to serve the public discourse or to report on stories in the public interest, but rather to serve the powerful 
largely corporate interests or private interests. And that's precisely what Twitter does. It makes pretty much all of its money by advertising on behalf of major corporations. It makes some money as well uh, through data licensing, but largely it's through advertising on behalf of these powerful uh, private interests. Uh, secondly, it attempts to addict. I mean, it's a, it's a highly addictive or to, again, to use a less sort of medically loaded term, it's a highly habit-forming uh, platform. Uh, it's designed, it conforms almost exactly to this sort of hooking model, which basically all major digital platforms conform to. Uh, what, what, what Nirial, this um, sort of tech guru, has called the hooking model. So it involves um, uh, uh, profile curation and sort of investment by its users. Uh, and also, it features variable rewards as one of the main sort of features of its platform. So it, you know, it um, it does this various ways. So uh, by getting likes on your tweets, or also by by getting uh, retweets. Um, and uh, finally, it's so so um, uh, so yeah. So it's highly highly habit forming. So basically, you hook all these journalists onto this platform that is basically designed not to further the goals of public interest, but rather to service uh, the goals of major corporations. And also, it sort of provides this kind of, it does provide this kind of veneer of sort of journalistic utility. So if you wanted to design a platform that really would effectively destroy the journalism profession, I don't think you could have done much worse than Twitter. Uh, when we come back with Thomas Muller-Nielsen, who's a PhD in philosophy, who is based in Moscow, uh, I want to start with this a tweet from Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, that uh, you dug up from five years ago that is particularly telling, I thought. More with Thomas Muller-Nielsen. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're talking to Thomas Moeller Nielsen. He's a Ph.D. in philosophy who has uh, written this piece about how Twitter uh, is uh, destroying journalism one tweet at a time. And uh, in, your, uh, in, in your piece, you uh, p- um, profile a tweet from Jack Dorsey from March of 2015 where he's celebrating uh, Twitter's nine-year birthday. And he writes, uh, so many uh, around the world have helped make Twitter what it is, but there's one group I'd like to thank today, journalists. And uh, that's that's so interesting that uh, he chose to single out journalists, uh, not only to uh, n- not only because of, you know, whatever they've done, these clusters that we were talking about before the break and their usage of it to, to help populate it and bring uh, bring audience to it. But it also seems to me that's who he maybe was intending to serve in the first place, that that was the point of having elites drive the medium. Uh, I think it's possible. I mean, I mean, as also noted in the piece, I mean, it's not exactly clear what Twitter was designed to do. I mean, it was, I mean, apart from, you know, I mean, it was a money-making enterprise, obviously, but apart from that, it's not entirely clear what it was designed to do. I mean, Dorsey himself, I mean, it was designed originally as a sort of, SMA-based platform, uh, like ostensibly the goal, I think, was to sort of, uh, well, I mentioned in the piece, it was to allow groups of friends to keep tabs on which other, or what, what other people have been doing. And it's only over the last maybe decade or so, maybe a bit less, that it's really sort of uh, attempted, it has really attempted to market, market itself as 
something that has genuine journalistic utility. I mean, I, I, originally it wasn't really a goal. Originally it was just sort of people tweeting to one another, you know, I'm eating a sandwich or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, really then, yeah, maybe I should be more specific because you're right, and you referenced this uh, interview you gave to L.A. Times where he sort of mumbles through what yeah. what the point of Twitter is, and he finally comes up and says, yeah, it's a new medium, that's what it is. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, it was it's it, clearly, uh, I don't know, sort of the vision quest was a little bit blurry, but... But uh, but 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 later on, I'm telling you, you know, nine years in as he's tweeting that out in 2015, it seems like and because this is who he is. He's one of these people, too. Now what I see happening is elites like me in journalism and elsewhere are driving uh, groupthink, are driving consensus. And uh, and 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 that's power. And so now we have two things. We have increased my power and they're increasing their power to drive uh, conventional wisdom or to drive a consensus on issues that are of importance to us. It seems to me that maybe it was uh, not initially uh, envisioned, but but that's what it's come to be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely a consequence of it. I mean, in, in, in general, also, the fact that journalists use the platform, it again provides it with this kind of, again, this veneer of respectability. It's like, oh, Twitter is a platform that a lot of journalists use. I mean, therefore, you know, it's a legitimate platform for, for me to use. Me as a, you know, uh, I'm talking me sort of as just a sort of general person and not particularly a journalist. I think it's bad as well. Um, I think in general it encourages people to, uh, to use the platform, precisely for that reason. It's like, oh, it's, you know, um, you know, people can at least give themselves, you know, they're told by, both by Twitter and by journalists. Uh, right. That, yeah, by using, by using Twitter, I'm informing myself. Yeah, and, and also because then what, what do they do? They report on tweets. That those, I, I, these yeah. tweets become news stories. I don't need to do any work. I mean, so this is one yeah. of the reasons. I, I just need to look at what influential people are tweeting, and then I turn that into a story. Then I bring on three panelists, and we got to, there's a half hour worth of programming right there. Simple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, it's interesting. I think only one in five Americans actually use the platform. Um, so, I mean, by covering, I mean, if you're just focusing on sort of, you know, domestic issues, I mean, by covering, by focusing so much so heavily on Twitter and having so many articles about Twitter, you're only covering a small part of the behavior of one-fifth of the American population. I mean, 80% of Americans just don't use the platform at all. But yeah, I mean, you you know, journalists, they, you know, they end up writing about issues that concern them and not necessarily issues that concern the general population. And, and one really negative consequence of this is that, yeah, journalists are not doing what journalists should do, which is really going out and reporting on newsworthy subject matters. They're sitting, in, you know, at their desks or at home or wherever it may be. They're on their phones or on their iPads or whatever. And they're on Twitter uh, generating news stories on that platform, which they then report upon. I think it's really, really bad. Uh, there's there's um, yeah, a, but, there's a there's a lot of talk in the West and in America and in, in Europe too about uh, breaking up big tech companies, uh, subjecting them to antitrust prosecution in the United States, uh, uh, removing uh, de- defamation exemptions from from uh, them. Mostly focused on on Google and to some extent Apple and Amazon too. But um, what, what about Twitter? Uh, what is the what is a you know a possible uh, way to address what you're describing in your piece in Quillette.com is it just um, uh, you know let's uh, let somebody uh, recognize this failure, uh, this uh, this uh, the, the, the denigration of journalism that is being fomented by Twitter, and fill that void with a, a different uh, product or a different medium, or is it something else? 
I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, um, I mean, if Twitter went out of business tomorrow, but a completely a platform identical to Twitter, but not called Twitter and not owned by Jack Dorsey, suddenly came into being and journalists ended up using that, I don't think it would solve the underlying issue. Yeah. I think there are basically two things, really. I mean, so one is, well, there are two options. So one, if Twitter remains as it is, I think journalists have no option but to, I mean, if, if they're serious about doing proper journalism and really reporting on stories that are in the public interest, I think they have to get off it. Uh, I mean, maybe not completely. I can imagine one or two journalists maybe keeping an eye on what Trump is tweeting, and maybe that's, you know, to some extent, sometimes it might be slightly newsworthy. I can I can imagine, you know, there might be some slightly newsworthy uh, uh, events that might occur on Twitter, but for the vast majority of them really have to get off the platform and do it as soon as possible, assuming Twitter doesn't fundamentally change. I mean, it were Twitter to fundamentally change and to fundamentally change its business model. I mean, I could imagine some kind of alternative platform that would allow for uh, news to, you know, breaking news to, to spread to journalists or something more serviceable, something whose goals weren't necessarily to service the interests of corporate clients, but something that's entirely, I could perhaps imagine something like that happening or, or Twitter becoming something like that in the future, maybe. But it would have to go a fundamental transformation of both its business model and also its sort of, its sort of general design interface. Um, yeah, so those are the two options as, as I see it. He is Thomas Muller. Get off or Twitter changes. Yeah. yeah, he is Thomas Muller Nielsen. He's a writer with a PhD in philosophy who is currently based in Moscow. His piece in Quillette at Quillette.com, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Journalism's death by a thousand tweets. I'll also tweet out uh, that uh, com- uh, that that study uh, that sort of accompanies it, uh, not purposefully, but it does uh, substantively from the University of Illinois. Thomas Muller Nielsen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. And, uh, you know, the way to deal with problems in life these days is to just redefine them out of existence. And so that's what the Canadians are doing with respect to obesity. Obesity should be defined by a person's health, not just their weight, says a new Canadian clinical guideline. Also advising doctors to go simply beyond recommending diet and exercise. Focus on the root causes of weight gain. Take a holistic approach to health. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Published in the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, the, the journal admonished weight related stigma against patients in the health system. The uh, dominant cultural narrative regarding obesity fuels assumptions about personal responsibility and lack of willpower, cast blame and shame on people living with obesity. This is why primary care physicians need to take a more holistic approach to their treatment. I got a job following fat people around with a tuba. Stop it! Cut it out! I have a glandular problem! Big boned. Yeah, looks like Stewie's out of work. That's an example of what not to do per the Canadian Medical Association, which I assume is uh, run by the people who created SCTV. I don't know. Uh, Miss uh, Ramos Salas is the director of research and policy at Obesity Canada. Yes, that's a thing. 
She said the research shows many doctors discriminate against obese patients in what way exactly that can lead to worse health comes irrespective of their weight. Weight bias is not just about believing the wrong thing about obesity. Weight bias actually has an effect on the behavior of healthcare practitioners, although it's not clear exactly why I guess they they don't care for their patients because they believe they are living an irresponsible lifestyle and so they deserve heart issues or uh, or breathing challenges or whatever it is that afflicts them. Oh, by the way, the rate of obesity has tripled over the past 30 years in Canada. Now about one in four Canadians is obese, according to Statistics Canada. I don't know if Statistics Canada is has any relations to Obesity Canada. I don't know why everything has to have Canada in its name either, but that's the great white north for you. All individuals, regardless of body size or composition, would benefit from adopting a healthy, well-balanced eating pattern and engaging in regular physical activity. The guideline still says, well, that's really revolutionary. And by the way, spending this much time on a guideline, diets don't work, Miss Ramos Salas says. And so it shouldn't just be about dieting. It has to be, I know, the word again, holistic. That's from Holistic Canada. Physicians should also ask permission before discussing a patient's weight and work with them to focus on health goals that matter to them instead of just telling them to cut calories. Ask permission before discussing a patient's weight with the patient? If you feel like somebody has a weight condition or has weighs a certain amount that is negatively impacting your health, you have to ask permission. Can I talk to you about the thing that is going to put you in the grave at an undue, unduly early age? Oh, boy. Uh, again, the, um, the, the sort of the, the Orwellian dystopian approach to everything. You don't need to change the rules. You don't even need to change outcomes. You just need to change the language and then the rules and the outcomes follow. This is Dan Prof. Thank you for joining us in another another edition of the show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof show. You are fake news.